can redeem the joke. I think I can make you forget it. How about that? I, I liked it, to be fair. So, um, in prepping for this message, a phrase kept coming to my mind. Okay, and it's nothing holy or inspired or anything like that. But several times in preparation for this message, I kept thinking, man, I bet they didn't see that coming. And so I started thinking, man, I didn't see that coming. Man, it's that coming. So what happens when you get something stuck in your head? You search the internet for it, right? And I was going to go with memes or gifs or something. But instead, what I found, and I'm going to just share a few of them. These are real-life stories of people's dating experiences. Keep in mind, I didn't see that coming, okay? So, and then these talk about partying and drinking and stuff like that, okay? Because that happens, okay? Don't, don't, don't be like, what? They were doing what? So listen to this. This is good. Went to a party with a guy. When I got there, he basically ignored me and flirted with some other chick most of the night, okay? Later that night... They followed me to my car when I was getting something out of my trunk for the party. Guy shoves and locks me in my own car trunk once I opened it. Can't find the latch. Super surprised and terrified. He's laughing hysterically outside the car, trying to use it as flirting fodder with the now horrified other girl. She's not a psychopath like him and helped me call someone with spare keys. I got out eventually... Super embarrassing, though. Say it with me. I never saw that coming, right? Another one. I dated a 22-year-old who took her teeth out to eat an ice cream. (laughs) Totally didn't see that coming and tried to make her feel comfortable. I didn't keep seeing her for other reasons, but yes, I experienced the missing teeth that night. So say it with me again, I never saw that coming, right? Can't stop, won't stop. Here we go. Went to a girl's house to meet her parents. Y'all don't see this one coming. Went to a girl's house to meet her parents, and they sit a teddy bear at the table, giving it food and drink. She was the youngest in the house at 23, And the bear was such a recognized member of the family, it had a Facebook page. They will probably be buried, but the weirdest part is when they would do voices for the bear and make me speak with it. I I, I, I never saw that coming. Last one. Might seem minor or silly... But the first time my girlfriend didn't want to go bar hopping on Friday, she asked me if I was cool just coming over, drinking Miller Lite, and watching a cops marathon. She specifically said it was the tased and confused special. I never thought I'd hear a girl say that. We've been married for two years now. (laughs) I never saw that coming. I'll stop now. Some of them were not that nice. Some of them were pretty scary, freaky. But, um, but again, oddly enough, I think that sets the tone for our passage today. Um, <laughs> everybody's like, oh, I'm getting out of here. <laughs> because today's message, today's passage, I think, I, I've said this before with other miracles, we're so comfortable with the miracles. We're so accepting of them and just, oh, yeah, that's what happened But I'm telling you what, what we're going to read today, these guys never saw coming. It never once crossed their mind that this was going to happen. And I hope that we can see it again. We we can't see it like we've never seen it. But we really have never seen it. You're like, what are you talking about? What's going on? Unicorns? What's going on here? Let's look at our text. Matthew 14, 22 through 33. If you would stand again. As we read the Bible again, just an incredible passage. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. 
And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Let's pray. God, your word is so good. You are so good. This place, this morning, these people, your spirit are so good. Help us, Lord, to see who you are. We have sung that you are worthy, but God, speak it to our hearts again. Show us again who you are, that you are indeed the ancient of days. And in the midst of trials and temptations and hardships and suffering, you will hold us fast because you have accomplished for us a redemption that we could not have accomplished ourselves. Help us to celebrate that and see your supernatural power in this text today in the supernatural strength of your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' supernatural name. Amen. You may be seated. I am really, really sorry that I did not experience this. I mean, there's some really neat things in the Bible. There's really some overwhelming miraculous things, but I think, I think, maybe just because I've been in it for two weeks now and been thinking about it, but I really wish I could have saw this, could have seen this, because this is nuts. This is crazy, and I don't, I, I don't think I can oversell how crazy this is. I'm going to try. Give me a shot. Crazier than a teddy bear sitting at a table. I'm not good. Thank you very much. <laughs> Let's go get some ice cream. Okay, let me take my teeth out. Okay, verse 22 is where we'll start, obviously. Mm, I've got the wrong verse here. That's all right. I'll fix it. What happened there? I'm having a bad verse day today. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. So, okay, this is not a standalone story, right? Um, I wasn't here last week due to illness in the family, including my own. So two weeks ago, we were looking at the story of uh, the account of, again, not a, not a made-up story, but a historical account, of Jesus slipping away to be alone after he heard that John the Baptist had been killed in prison and he wanted to get alone, he showed up on, he went to a desolate place, it said, went across the lake. And when he got there, a big crowd's there, maybe 25,000 people. And he served them and felt compassion for them, healed their sick, taught them, and, and ministered to them all day long. And it got near the end of the day, and his disciples were like, You need to send these folks away. They need to find some food unless they faint along the way going home. Jesus said, you give them something to eat. Disciples like, well, first of all, we ain't got nothing. And second of all, if we had food, it wouldn't be enough to feed this many people. Jesus said, what do you got? They're like, well, we found this kid and we stole his lunch. And it's two fish and five loaves of bread. And that's what we got. Jesus said, bring it to me. He blesses it, holds it up to heaven, distributes it all till they eat, until they're all satisfied, thousands and thousands of people, and then they collect 12 baskets full of bread and fish that were left over. And what did we say? And I think it's very important that we remember what we said. That was supernatural. There are no natural means that can explain what happened that day. Jesus performed a miracle. Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, God in the flesh, the incarnate God, did something that was not possible that day. So, what we're looking at today flows directly out of that. And the first word in the verse sets the tone for what's going on. The word is immediately. Anybody familiar with the Gospel of Mark? He says immediately all the time. I mean all the time. Here, Matthew brings that up, which 
they think Matthew leaned on Mark's account quite a bit to get his account uh, and vice versa. They kind of went back and forth. But, but Matthew really follows uh, Mark's direction here, especially when he uses the word immediately. So, so what does immediately imply? It implies something important, something quick, something pressing. So Jesus fed the, the big multitude. Again, could have been as many as 25,000 people. And, you know, he, 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 he's, he's processing things. Everybody's there. They take up the leftovers. And now here immediately, which implies intensity and importance, why would Jesus do something immediately? Well, we find our answer in John's account of this miracle, and it's aftermath in John 6. And there's a verse, John six fifteen, gives us an explanation of why Jesus did something immediately. Look at this, John six fifteen. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now who's doing what here? This crowd sees that Jesus did something supernatural. And not just something supernatural. He's done a lot of supernatural things, but he gave them food supernaturally. Anybody like food? Yeah. I'll take my teeth out to eat some ice cream if I need to, right? But why is this miracle, why is this miracle creating such heat and spark? Well, think about it. In a subsistent society, which is what they were in, where people struggle to put food on the table for themselves and their families every day, what would be more advantageous than having a king who could provide limitless food anytime, all the time? This man, they're thinking, had used nothing and fed thousands of people. Who better to lead us? Who better to govern us? Who better to save us? And Jesus didn't want anything to do with this earthly kingdom stuff. Right? So immediately, back in Matthew 14, 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Okay, so the crowds were whipped into a frenzy and were going to take Jesus by force and make him king. So Jesus' first priority is what? Immediately he does what? He sends his disciples away. Why? Why? What was he sending them away from? Sending them away from the crowd. Why? Was he afraid for their safety? Were they going to mob, mob the disciples, beat them up? No, I don't think so. He wanted to keep them safe. He didn't want his disciples getting caught up in this throng, in this madness, in this craziness, which was, hey, let's set up this guy as our king. I think he wanted to protect his men from themselves more than the crowd. How easy would it be to get caught up in this craze, this madness, this hysteria of the king seekers? And they could start telling stories. Oh, y'all should see what he did over here. We crossed the sea one time. He spoke to the wind and the waves. He delivered two demon-oppressed men whose names were legion. Yeah, y'all are right. Let's see how easy it would be for that to happen. But Jesus didn't want his guys focused on an earthly kingdom. He had laid out the manifesto of the kingdom of the heavens in the Sermon on the Mount back in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And nowhere in that message did he mention establishing an earthly throne. Now he will do that when all things are made subject to him. But not right here, not right now. Jesus was not going to get into a political contest with Caesar or with Pilate or with Herod. That wasn't his goal. And that's exactly what the people wanted. So he, Jesus didn't want his men, his 12 guys, getting off track, which could very easily happen in a crowd of 20 plus thousand people. A person is smart, people are stupid. So he wanted to protect them from their own thoughts and ambitions, so he told them to get into the boat and go back to the other side from whence they came while he dismissed the crowds. One person dismissing 25,000 people says something. Jesus was not tempted to be the earthly ruler of this crowd, so he'll handle dismissing them. And I think it's interesting that the text doesn't say that he had avoided the crowd. Rather, he put himself in charge of the crowd. He would deal with all that while protecting his disciples from having to be in the midst of it for their own sake. Verse 23. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening come, 
he was there alone. When he even came, he was there alone. So way back when, Jesus had went off to have some time by himself, and he's finally getting his alone time. He had sought it after finding out about John's death. That's why he had come to this side of the lake, but the crowds found him. But now he's alone, disciples gone, crowds gone. And listen, what does Jesus do with his alone time? He goes up on the mountain by himself to pray. To pray. He doesn't take a nap. He doesn't grill himself a nice steak. He doesn't binge watch his favorite show. Jesus wanted to unwind. Jesus wanted to rest and relax. So Jesus, needing rest and comfort, goes to his Father in prayer. That's convicting to me. But the verse says that when evening came, when the sun went down, when Jesus was there alone, he was up on the mountain by himself praying. What about his men, though? Where were they? Uh Uh-oh. Verse 24. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was... Against them. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we had a discussion of where Jesus and his disciples went from and to in order to get to the desolate place. And we had looked at this map, and there was some debate among the scholars, commentators about. So, top left is Capernaum, which you can't hardly see. I know you can't see it. And most people, including, I said, John MacArthur said that they sailed to the east over to the right side to Bethsaida. But there's two Bethsaidas. There's a Bethsaida on the east, there's a Bethsaida on the west. And some people say that place labeled desolate place is where they went to, which how they, that they, how they went from Capernaum just up the lake a little bit. I think this verse kind of settles actually where they went. Um, let me explain that. So the disciples had left the desolate place in the boat at Jesus' direction. It says they were a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Now, the storms that blew up on this lake were usually from wind tunnels that came off the Mediterranean Sea, which was farther to the west here, off the screen, and the wind would come off the Mediterranean Sea and come down through, you can kind of see the the graphic relief stuff, these mountains here, the wind would come down like a wind tunnel through those mountains and come up on the sea and just whip it up into a frenzy. And it says here that the disciples had left the desolate place. It says they were a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Okay? So the wind would have been coming from the north, south, east, west. So coming from the Mediterranean Sea, the wind would have been coming from the west. And for the wind to be coming against them, they'd have had to have been traveling west, going into the wind. Okay? That just makes me think that that Bethsaida on the eastern side of the sea is where they had been. No big deal. Just putting some pieces of the puzzle together. So they left up there, which again, I know you can't read that, where it says Bethsaida. And they're traveling back to Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. And this giant storm blows up. And it's one of these terrible storms that they talk about that happen on this sea. And they just come out of nowhere. And they're going west into the wind. It says the wind was against them. And that wind was covering the Sea of Galilee with brutal power. So it would seem they were coming from an eastern direction, heading back to Capernaum to the west, which would put the desolate place Bethsaida on the eastern side of the lake, not the one on the western side. Again, not a big deal. But the important thing to note is that these guys, these disciples, were not in a good place. They were in a bad place. They were locked in a trunk. And these guys had been around this like most of them, most of their lives. Experienced sailors, they knew what they were doing. Doesn't matter. When this wind comes in, when this storm blows in, I don't care if you're, I don't know, a famous sailor. Somebody give me a Cracker Jack. I don't know. I don't know. John Paul, right. I'll take your word for it. Magellan, he did sail around the world, right? So I'd say he's got some skills or had some skills. I don't care who you are, when this storm comes up, you are helpless. 
They are not in a good situation. They're a long way from land. They're being beaten by the waves with the gale force winds against them. Not a good situation to say the least. They had left. Now listen to this. They had left while Jesus was dismissing the crowds. How long ago that been? We'll talk about that in a second. Jesus had gone up on the mountain alone at evening and by that time they were out away from land feeling hopeless and I'm sure scared in the middle of the lake. The wording of the verse just yells bad but is contrasting their situation with that of Jesus who was alone praying with his father a long way from land, beaten against them. And these words just smack of uh uh-oh and oh no. And again, the question is how long have they been out here? Look at this, 1425. And in the fourth watch of the night... He came to them walking on the sea. Jesus sent them away on their boat and then he dismissed the crowds. So they had been worried that the crowd would not be able to find food in time. So they had asked Jesus to send them away so that they would have time to go and find food somewhere. So that implies that it was late afternoon when Jesus fed the multitude. Okay, Right after that, Jesus sent the disciples away in a boat just after dinner time. Then Jesus sent the crowd away and went up on the mountain to pray. So from late afternoon to the evening, Jesus was wrapping things up with the crowd after the disciples were gone. Then Jesus spent time on the mountain alone with God. And now this verse says it was the fourth watch of the night. Now let me give you a clue what that means. The fourth watch is the last watch of the night. The night was broken up into four watches. Six to nine, nine to twelve, twelve to three, and three to six. So, somewhere between 3 and 6 in the morning, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. Now, we'll get to that walking on the sea thing in just a minute. But for right now, think about the fact that the disciples had been out on that lake, rowing, struggling, freaking out, and who knows what, from late afternoon of one day until the early, early morning of the next day. Let's just say from 5 p.m., 6 p.m., Till 3 or 4 a.m. For a span of 10 to 12 hours. 10 to 12 hours. These poor men had been adrift and attacked by the forces of nature, despairing of their very lives, one would think. And so after what seemed like an eternity, probably thinking they were approaching their eternity, here comes Jesus. And what's he doing? He's walking on the sea. He's he's walking on the sea. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah, I've heard that story. The man is walking on water. Give it a shot. Let me just say that. And I know some of you are saying, I can walk on water when it's frozen. This water was not frozen. Jesus is walking on the sea. And I'm guessing they never saw that coming. About two in the morning, Jesus is going to come, he's going to walk on the water, and he's going to come get us. That never crossed their mind. They weren't, well, it'll happen. It'll happen. He, he, he can do that, right? Yeah, it's not a problem, not a problem. No, 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 no. They never saw that coming. Apparently, he up on the mountain had seen their plight and somehow, in the midst of his praying, he knew that they needed him. So what does Jesus do when he finds out his men need him? He walks on the sea. He walks on the sea and gets out to them in their place in their time of need. So how did they react? They must have been like, shoo, man, I'm glad you're here, right? Verse 26, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they said, Jesus, our guy, we knew it, we knew it. No, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. (laughs) So God shows up. I'm sure they'd been calling out to him all night long. And the word that describes the reaction starts with, but. Jesus shows up, but. When the disciples see him walking on the sea, they were what? What's the word? Terrified. 
Now, we look out from our vantage point here in 2020, we're 21st century theologians, and we know this account, and we know this story, and we think, oh, come on, guys, chill out, it's Jesus. But have you ever seen anybody walking on the sea? No, you have not. You've heard about it, but I promise you, you ain't never seen it. Well, there was that one. No, there wasn't. There was not that one time. There was this one time, and that's it. You've never seen anybody walking on the sea. And neither had they. And exhausted, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, they see something walking on the sea. And it terrified them. They said, it's a ghost. This has gone from bad to worse. It's a ghost. Now, why would they say that? Because people don't walk on the sea. It doesn't happen. So they're just thinking logically. They didn't think, oh, that's Jesus. He's come walking on the sea to rescue us. They didn't think that. Because Jesus is a person, right? And people don't walk on the sea. So it must be a non-human, not an animal. They didn't say, oh, it's Loch Ness Monster or Sea of Galilee Monster. It's not an animal, but, but, but it's a human looking thing. So therefore, it must be a ghost. That's the only logical explanation, as illogical as that is. They didn't see this coming. It's not an animal. Looks like a human must be a ghost. And if you see a ghost, you're like, hello, ghost. How are you this fine evening? Enjoying the starter, Maria? We're not. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a ghost, and they're terrified. If you see a ghost, it would be scary. Never seen one myself. Never seen a dead person visibly. Never. This never happened to me. And in their delirium, their thoughts thought that this mysterious thing that was walking on the sea must have been a ghost. And they cried out in fear. These grown, big, burly fishermen cried out in fear. And you would too if you were in their situation. Well, maybe, maybe not. I'm pretty tough. No, you're not. And then verse 27. Wow. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Jesus, being Jesus, not the ghost of Jesus, sees his men's fear. He sees their distress and immediately speaks to them. And don't miss what he says. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Take heart means to to have confidence, to be of good cheer or comforted. Jesus tells them to have confidence and to be comforted. Why? Because, because it is I. Now this is a very distinct phrase. It doesn't mean it's me, y'all. That's not what he's saying here. The Greek translation is E-G-O, ego, E-I-M-I. Ego, I me. Guess what that means? It means I am. Sound familiar to anybody? How did God reveal himself to Moses when Moses asked what he was supposed to say when the Hebrews asked who it was that was sending Moses to them to deliver them out of Egypt? God said, tell them, I am sent you. I am is God's own name for himself. He is the ultimate being. Therefore, I am describes him perfectly. And Jesus, to comfort his terrified men, says, Be confident! I am! And then he adds to that, Do not be afraid. What happens when God shows up in your situation? What do we say here Wednesday night? Is God unaware of the situation? Is God somewhat distressed about the situation? Is God wringing His hands hoping that you can find a way out of your situation? Or is God active in the situation to do what only He can do? So Jesus shows up and asserts His deity and says... Be comforted, guys. Don't be afraid. I am. 
And they must have been like, whoa. Whoa. Well, the reaction is peculiar. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. (laughs) So ultimately what he's saying here is, I don't know if it's really you or not. So Peter, of course it was Peter, answers Jesus. And what does he say? He wants proof that this is really Jesus. And what proof does he want? Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now I think I would have thought of something different there. What did I say to you when you were breaking the bread back there? Or, you know, you know, what have you chided me for in the past if I'm Peter? I think I'd have come up with something different. But not Peter. Only Peter, I guess. What does Peter think here? I don't know. Is he playing alpha male, exerting himself in some macho way? I don't think so. I think he's just grasping at straws. I think he's freaking out a bit, maybe. Jesus, if it's you, like you say it is, command me to come to you on the water. Note the word command. Prove it's you. I need proof that it's you that's in the midst of all this chaos. I need proof that it's you who's orchestrating these waves and this wind. And I need to, be, I need to see and know for sure that this is you, Jesus. And the only way that he could come up with to get that proof is, help me to do what you're doing. Prove it's you. Command me to come to you out there on the water where you're walking. Let me walk on the sea if it's really you. Do in and through me what I can't do myself. Do in and through me what only you can do if that's really you. Ooh, that's pretty strong. How'd that go for him? Was Jesus mad at him? He said, Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Jesus is not upset with him. And Jesus knew his heart. So Jesus knew his motives. And Jesus said, okay, come on, big boy. Big boys, I added that myself. That's not in the original. <laughs> wow. Jesus does not rebuke or correct him. He doesn't challenge him. He just says, come. He says it's okay for Peter to come out and walk on the sea with him. Let me read that again. He says it's okay for Peter to come out and walk on the sea with him. (laughs) And what does Peter do? Peter gets out of the boat. Now it's storming, y'all. They've been out there 10 or 12 hours straining against the oars. And Peter gets out of the boat and walks on the sea out to Jesus. Don't miss the magnitude of this moment. It's odd enough that Jesus was walking on the sea. But he also lets Peter give it a shot too. Read that again. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. In the middle of a horrendous storm, after hours and hours of being defeated by this storm and these winds and these waves, Peter gets on top of them and comes to Jesus. Peter's out there walking on the water, headed out to meet Jesus on the waves. This is just, it's like it's like, a, like a wrestling event or something. This is just absolute pandemonium has broken out here on the Sea of Galilee this evening, ladies and gentlemen. You pay for the whole seat, but you just need the edge. <laughs> Nothing's making sense here. We read it like it's one plus one equals two. This is a very advanced calculus problem going on here. Algorithms and crazy things and Z's and X's and things that aren't supposed to be in math are all over this because this is crazy. They never saw this coming. And there's nothing making sense right now out on the Sea of Galilee. And that's the problem because that starts to, pardon the pun, sink in with Peter. Verse 30, but, man, we've seen that word a lot today, haven't we? But when he saw the wind, Peter, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Peter gets out of the groove of all this miraculous stuff. 
And he comes back to earthbound reality. It says that he saw the wind and was afraid. Anybody ever seen the wind? No, you have not, but you have seen the effects of the wind. Just had some tornadoes down in Nashville, right? Horrendous. When you're seeing wind, something's wrong. It says that he saw the wind and he was afraid. He saw what the wind was causing to happen. Peter saw the waves. Peter saw the wild eyes and the crazy hair of his longtime fishing buddies. And all of a sudden he was afraid. Yeah, he was. His affection and curiosity with the water-walking Jesus got trumped by the real and present danger of the storm and it scared him out of his mind. And in his fear, he began to sink. There's an analogy or 12 there, isn't there? Nature became more real than the supernatural. The sea became more real than the Savior. And Peter... The rock begins to sink. But he's not completely out of his mind, right? Because he turns to the right place in his fear. As he began to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me! He was afraid. He needed help. And so he calls out to his Lord, his master, the one who's still walking on the water. And what does he ask? He says, Lord, save me! He doesn't rely on his swimming prowess or his buddy's help. No, he goes to Jesus directly and calls out for Jesus to save him. That's a good move. And what happens? Verse 31. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Third time seeing this word immediately in the text today. It makes you feel the intensity. As Peter begins to sink and you feel the intensity of what's going on, as he feels the intensity of what's going on, he calls out to Jesus. Jesus immediately reaches out his hand and takes hold of him. Now get that picture. Now, how do you begin to sink? Let me tell you how you begin to sink. You sink. It's not like, hey, Jesus. No, no, no. Jesus. Lord, save me! And Jesus immediately reaches out his hand and takes hold of him, still firm, walking on water. The Lord, walking on the sea, sees his guy get distracted and start to descend into the abyss, and he reaches out and grabs him by the hand and saves him. Again, there's some analogies there, I would think. And then Jesus has something to say to Peter. Dude, you did pretty good. We'll practice again next storm. No? What does he say to Peter? Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, I don't know about you, but I'm awfully impressed that Peter had the faith to even suggest to Jesus that he would want to get out of that boat in the first place. And then he actually did. He got out of the boat, and he actually did walk on water, which people don't do. So sinking to me is not that big of a surprise. But Jesus sees a chance to challenge Peter here, to correct bad thinking, and points to Peter's fear as what? As a lack of faith. And ask the question, he's got the audacity to ask the question, why would you doubt? Why? Well, maybe because people don't walk on water, Jesus. Maybe because we've been within an inch of our lives for 10 to 12 hours now. Maybe I doubted because those waves were over my head. Maybe because, oh, I don't know, you look like a ghost or something. Why did I doubt? Because I had every reason to. Because my senses told me something was wrong. I was way out of my league, Jesus. I I, I must have lost my mind and it scared me to death. That's why I doubted Jesus. Peter had seen the winds and he was scared to death. But Jesus had seen Peter's faith and he also confronts him as to why he would doubt after showing such faith. And so the lack of faith makes even his faith that he showed seem small. And Jesus asks him the most natural, maybe supernatural question that he could ask him. Why did you doubt? You were doing it, Peter. You were walking by faith on the water, so why did you doubt? And that's a just question for sure. Anybody ever been there? God gives you this 
amazing answer to prayer. He delivers you. He helps you. He provides you, whatever. And not too long after that, the next thing pops up and what do we do? We doubt. Oh, no. We remember that we're human. We remember that things are hard and that things are bad and we doubt. Even though we've seen God's direct provision or God's direct intervention in our situation, the next little thing that comes up, we doubt. And I do it every day. And I think Jesus would ask this same question at times like that as well. To me, to you. Oh, you little faith, why did you doubt? And then watch this. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Now what a few moments this has been. Now again, this, happened, this was not like you know a 12-hour excursion here with Jesus walking on the water. Bam, 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 bam. Jesus shows up walking on the sea. Peter asks for proof that it's Jesus. Asking to be beckoned out on the water to Jesus. Jesus agrees. Peter walks out to Jesus. Peter gets afraid. Peter starts sinking. Jesus saves him, questions him about his little faith, and then this. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Peter goes from sinking And then into the boat and then into a perfect calm as the wind ceases as they get into the boat. Now again, don't miss the magic of all this. These are not fairy tales. This happened. And imagine the roller coaster. This must have been for all of them, but for Peter in particular. Hopeless, about to die, rowing for 10 or 12 hours. Scared to death because somebody's walking on the water. Full of faith, walking on the water himself. Scared, sinking, saved, delivered. And then calmed. All in a matter of who knows. A few moments. Imagine the jolt. Of a suddenly calm sea. For these folks. It's calm. Hours and hours of desperate striving. Scared stiff by a ghost. Amazed at their master. And then all of a sudden. The storm vanishes and the sea stills. Why? Because Jesus was in the boat. Was it another miracle? You bet it was. How many miracles have we seen in this passage? Jesus walking on the water, Peter walking on the water, and the storm disappearing when Jesus gets in the boat. We've seen three top shelf supernatural acts in this passage today. And we read it like it's nothing. Jesus had done this before back in Matthew 8. I mentioned it earlier when he rebuked the waves and the wind. But here, he says nothing. He just gets in the boat. And the storm just knows who's boss and stops. There I say it. Again, don't miss this. Can you imagine the wonder of this moment? Anybody ever had a time when prolonged pain or or prolonged trial or struggle just came to an end? A definite end that could be seen, heard, and felt. Well, all their troubles were gone once Jesus got in their boat. No more wind, no more waves, no more fear. Jesus steps foot into the boat and voila. All is well. Like really well. Like perfect. How would you react? We see exactly how they responded in our last verse today. And those in the boat worshipped him. Saying, truly, you are the Son of God. And that's the point. After feeding thousands, sending his men away, praying to his Father, coming out on the waves, walking on the water, surprising his men, challenging Peter, rescuing them all and showing his mastery over the elements again, those in the boat there with Jesus, his men, those twelve guys, worshipped him. That is the point. That was the desired outcome. And why do they worship Him? Because they see Jesus for who He really is. Truly, you are the Son of God. Now this is no idle statement. This is a profession of the deity of Jesus Christ. Truly, they say, you, Jesus, our Lord, our Master, our Teacher, you are the Son of God. Which means He's equal with God. Which means He's the same as God. He has the life of God in Him. And there are those who have the audacity to say that the Bible never proclaims that Jesus Christ was God. This is a bold 
plain proclamation that Jesus was God. That's what they're saying. You are God and we are worshiping you. Worship is reserved for God alone and they give it to God alone there in that boat. The crowds had wanted this miracle worker to give them endless food, but these disciples who have seen and heard so much proclaim that Jesus, you are God indeed. You're God in a body. This is not a strong man or a powerful person. This is God revealing himself to them in sweeping displays of divine majesty, and they worshiped him. The word worship is one that means a lesser recognizes the worth of the greater. They are mere men. And he is God. He is the very Son of God. And they worship him. You bet they did. What about us? Brings us to application. Three Ps. Panic, power, and praise. Panic, power, and praise. And I'm going to guess you didn't see this coming. You didn't see this application point coming. I didn't. Panic. We need to panic. You say, what? We need to panic. Not over a coronavirus. Not over things spinning out of control, necessarily. Contrary to what people will say and tell you and what you may think yourself, contrary to what you've probably heard most of your life, listen to me, please. God will most certainly give you more than you can handle. Let me say that again. God will most certainly give you more than you can handle. I wish I had a dollar for every time that somebody said to me, well, we all know God won't put anything in our lives we can't handle. Wrong. What they are referencing is 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So what's that referring to? God will not allow you to be tempted to the point that you could possibly say, I had no choice but to sin. God will never put you in that position. He'll always provide a way of escape. As we read the account from Matthew 14 today, Jesus did what? He put his men right in the middle of an impossible situation. He did that. He sends them away from the mob because the the storm that was coming on the sea was much more desirable than the mob that was right in front of them. He sends them away from the mob into the mouth of a monster storm that they, even as experienced Sea of Galilee fishermen, could not handle. It was bigger, stronger, meaner, and scarier than they were or anything that they could make it through themselves. And please listen to me. Our lives as Christ followers are designed to bring us to a point that we realize that we surely will not see everything coming. We surely will not be able to handle what all comes our way. And we surely will be outmatched and outgunned by the trials in our lives. They are designed to show our weakness and our frailty. My heart's a-pounding, y'all. Famous passage on suffering. 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10, the Apostle Paul says, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my ability to overcome my situation. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, my inability, my flat-out panic in the midst of it all, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. It's time to panic. It's time to panic and realize I can't do this anymore. I can't keep up this charade of acting like a perfect good little Christian boy in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. I can't do this anymore. It's too hard. It's impossible for me. 
And that's exactly what Paul's saying here. What an amazing take Paul has here. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul recognized that his weaknesses are designed weaknesses. Programmed into his self, into his person by God to show Paul's inability. We said in our last message from Matthew that Jesus said in John 15 that apart from him we can do nothing. And that is seen in today's passage as the disciples battled this storm that was far too much for them. And then as we saw the reaction to Jesus coming to them, walking on the water, we see that sometimes even God's deliverance, even His salvation scares us to death. Jesus was there to save them, but just seeing Him terrified them. Sometimes we are scared of God's deliverance. Because it's going to cost us dearly. God's deliverance is going to cost us our pride. It's going to cost us our ease. It's going to cost us our comfort. It's going to cost us our routine. And listen to me, you are gloriously overmatched. Who can straighten what he hath bent? Paul would say it this way in 2 Corinthians 2.16. Who is sufficient for these things? You're not. I'm not. We're not. And we should rejoice in that. When it gets hard, and it's hard all the time, we just don't always see it. But when it's too much for us to handle, we need to say, God, I am flat out panicking. I can't do this. And rejoice in that. Why? Because Jesus does indeed deliver his people, which is our next point. Power, panic, power, power. Jesus, listen to me, listen to me. Jesus provides supernatural power to his people for their deliverance. You said supernatural, and that's what I meant. We mentioned while we were in this passage that Jesus knew to come to them in their distress. Somehow he knew that they had been laboring in the storm all those hours. He came to them then walking on the sea. Herb Hodges says that he made their problem his pavement. And he did it in a supernatural way. You say, well, what's that mean? Am I going to see Jesus' apparition? Am I going to see Jesus as a ghost? Am I going to get storm clouds parting? And, or maybe somebody's going to spell something out in the sky? That's not what I'm saying at all. It's a perfect follow-up to what we said in our last message from Matthew 14. Listen to me. We need the miracle power of God to live the Christian life. That's why the Holy Spirit came. He lives in you to give you supernatural ability to do what you can't do. And it's God's power. It's His power. You cannot and you will not succeed in your faith by your efforts alone. You are overmatched and overwhelmed. But God. We saw Paul ask who was sufficient for these things in 2 Corinthians 2.16 just now. Let me give you some context for that. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17. But thanks be to God, Paul says, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, listen to me, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Wow. God leads us in triumphal procession through Christ and spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere through us. Who does that? God does that! We are commissioned by God, living in the sight of God, speaking in Christ. In Him. Paul says it this way in Romans 8.31, What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? Romans 8.37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. He will hold me fast. He is the ancient of days. Where feet may fail, my faith will stand. He is worthy. He is able. Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? 
because we get our eyes on the natural. We get our thoughts on the natural. We get our affections on the natural. We get our hands on the natural. And we lose sight of the supernatural power of God that is not only available to us, that we have been commissioned to walk in. In your inability, He is more than able. Back to 2 Corinthians 12 again. But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me for the sake of Christ. Then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Oh, we of little faith. Why do we doubt? And this all leads to one thing. All of this leads to one thing, which is our last point. We've seen panic, power, and now praise. Praise. Jesus revealed himself to the disciples in these miracles today for one purpose, and that was that they might worship him as God. This was not some sideshow or attempt to impress them or just show off with a, hey, look what I can do, kind of bend to it. No, Jesus was cementing in them the truth that he was the sovereign God of the universe, which demands worship. And know this for certain. The steps we saw in them today are still to be evident in our lives today. We freak out. We panic. We're overwhelmed in those areas of our lives that are trials and struggles. Jesus intervenes with His supernatural abilities. And what's our response? It has to be worship. Now, got through that. Glad that worked out. We panic. God shows His power and we praise Him. That's the goal Of the Christian life. That's it. God demands that you worship Him. And He'll move heaven and earth to make sure that you know why. He did it already. He sent His Son, God in the flesh, to die for our sins, to make available to us the very gates of heaven. And the goal is that we would worship Him. It's exactly what we all read this morning. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, and He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything He might be preeminent first for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with God and what happens when we have peace with God we worship God You can't worship God without peace. But when you have the peace of God, when Jesus gets in the boat, we have peace and we worship Him. That in everything, He might be preeminent. In our failures, in our struggles, in our fears, that He might be preeminent. We saw the disciples terrified today when Jesus showed up. Even our fears lead us to worship. All things are designed toward that end. And this is the gospel itself, right? We despair of ourselves. We can't. We look to Jesus, who alone can, and then we worship Him. That's the gospel. We can't. He does. We worship. Today, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're going through. But I know that Christ is sufficient. And He will bring His supernatural peace into your life if you will freak out and panic and say, I can't do this. I can't save myself. I can't maintain myself through this. Whether you're saved or unsaved, you can't do it. But He can. And since He can, He will. And if He will, He demands our worship. 
panic, power, and praise. I bet you didn't see that coming. Let's pray. Father, we have great needs. And you are a great Savior. We cannot, but Jesus, we proclaim that you can. We believe that you can. We believe that you will. And God, if there are those here this early afternoon now who do not know that you can, would you reveal yourself in the power of your spirit, your supernatural Holy Spirit, and breathe life into a dead man's soul, into a dead woman's soul, into a person who is hostile towards you. God, that you would bring peace and reconciliation and that they would call out as they see themselves sinking, Lord, save me. And God, for those who do know you this morning, may we understand that we are all sinking in and of ourselves. And what we need more than anything is for you to save us. We don't want to get into a swimming contest. We want to call out for deliverance and help and hope. And so we look to Jesus. We don't know how you'll work it out, but we know that you will work it out in a way that is beneficial to us. You are causing all things to work together for our good. And that will lead us to worship you. May it be so in our lives, God, so that you get glory and that we worship you the way we should. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll just stand and receive a benediction. I'll keep going back to this one because I like it. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can.